0: Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Jim Rafferty. He is the author of Leader by Accident Lessons in Leadership, Loss, and Life. Uh, it was released in October 2021. Leader by Accident recounts the tragedy that thrust Jim into a demanding volunteer role and how that experience fueled a subsequent journey into entrepreneurship. Jim is a marketing and communications consultant and principal of J Marketing LLC in Baltimore, Maryland. He's a former radio announcer and program director. And uh, Jim now puts three decades of marketing experience to work in helping businesses communicate more effectively with their audiences. Now, uh, Jim, I wanna say thank you for for coming on and agreeing to allow me to have this opportunity to interview you and talk about your book and and really what puts you on this, this path that you're on today. Um, where were you born and raised?
1: Uh, born and raised, first of all, thank you, uh, Dave. Thanks for having me, appreciate it. Um, born and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia and lived there and grew up there and went to college up in central New York state at Ithaca college, but stayed in Philly and got into the radio business, worked there for a couple of years. And in the radio business, you know, things don't last. And I wound up taking a job in Baltimore in 1989 and my wife and I've been here ever since. Uh, actually I, I timed that really well. Cause 1989 was the year we got married. So I moved down here and that got me out of a lot of the, uh, the China pattern picking and all the stuff that goes around with, uh, with getting married. So, uh, so that was good, but yeah, we're, we're Baltimoreans now and, you know, raised our kids here and all that.
0: What was life like growing up in the suburbs of Philly for you? You know, it
1: was interesting. Um, you know, interesting family history there in that my, my dad was born three doors down from where we grew up and raised by his two aunts. And, you know, so there was by the time you know my my, my father father's long since passed and, and my mother as well but by the time that happened and, and that house was no longer in the family that was like a hundred years of family history on that street which doesn't happen too much anymore so we really had some roots there and then my dad was a uh, police officer and then a detective for the the local township you know for our township in the suburbs of philadelphia for 30 years and that you know uh shaped him certainly and shaped me to a degree too i think you know when when you're in a position and you know this to to a degree as a firefighter you know you spend a lot of time seeing people at their worst and it can take its toll on you over time and you know i, I still have the the greatest respect for any anyone who puts on the uniform for for that reason because you know I've, I've, i lived in the house with one
0: would you say that your father had the the greatest impact on you as far as your trajectory in life?
1: Probably my father and mother equally. Um, you know, I'm a part-time musician also. I'm a singer and, and that comes straight from my mother. She was a uh, piano teacher and church organist Her from the age of 18 until she couldn't do it anymore in her 80s. And I became a church soloist very young and I still do that. Uh, so that, you know, that's sort of one of my Sounds terrible to call it a side hustle, but that's one of the things I do, right? Uh, so, so certainly her from that degree, but yeah, I think you know your parents are always your major influence, probably in ways good and in ways not so good, right?
0: Would you say that your mother had the the biggest influence though on your performing career?
1: yeah absolutely yeah she was a little bit of a stage mom right so uh you know i got pushed into talent competitions and like i said singing in church you know from the age of 12 or something you know and then that kind of thing so yeah yeah 100 her from that and and i should also mention you know i'm the youngest of four by several years so you know my I, my siblings also were big influences because they were old enough they were older enough than I was that, you know, there was none of that competitive tug of war. I, I sometimes sort of kid that it was like growing up with five parents, but, you know, I had a whole team looking out for me as I grew up. That was great.
0: A little bit about your, your career in broadcasting. What, what kind of radio stations did you work for?
1: Well, let's see. Um, mostly what we then called adult contemporary or middle of the road radio. I mean, you know, in the 80s and 90s, that meant Barry Manilow and Neil Diamond and Ann Murray and some oldies and, you know, sometimes even a little older, older, like Sinatra stuff. But, uh, you know, mostly sort of those core artists, Barbara Streisand would have been in there, too. And and then on to some some newer stuff as well. But, yeah, I was full time in radio for about 12 years. And then even after I moved into the home improvement business, I continued to be a part time announcer for. Geez, another decade and then a few years off and then probably another five years after that. So on and off I've you know, radio has been a big part of my life and I still do some voiceover work, but I, I don't do live radio anymore.
0: Was it around the time that your career in broadcasting was was ending that you were kind of thrust into this volunteer position? A little bit after
1: that yeah um actually a good bit after that but um i moved to baltimore as i said to to be program director of a radio station that was 1989 and that lasted about two years and they changed formats and then i wound up um not in radio anymore because 1991 was another little economic downturn and there wasn't a lot of hiring going on and i really wanted to stay in the mid-atlantic area so i was a little bit picky about where i was looking and anyway after several months of not finding anything I wound up sort of with what I thought was a temporary job at a home improvement company here and then um, that wound up growing into a career and I was there for just short of 21 years i eventually became the the marketing manager and the sales manager for you know pretty sizable home improvement company and it was sort of towards the last few years of that that the the tragedy happened that, that put me into the boy Scout troop
0: and can you talk a little bit about that because that's Really, I guess, the major experience that you had that led you to writing your book, correct?
1: It is, and that's really well put because it was the it, the book is not about that tragedy, but it certainly was the catalyst for a lot of change in my life. And the story was that in two thousand and eight, a local attorney and his wife and their two younger sons were all shot to death by their oldest son, who was then fifteen. And it was every bit as, unthinkable as it sounds. I mean, it's just, you know, um, and I, I always say when I tell the story that, you know, those as a family, they were everywhere involved in our community and, you know, sports and PTA and everything. And, you know, in the context of all that, my little slice of it is hardly worth talking about, but it it made a big impact on my life. And the, the reason for that is that, that John, the father, was the scoutmaster of the Boy Scout troop that our son, Matt, belonged to all three of the boys uh, the the brownings were uh, members of the troop and a few days later i was the new scoutmaster of the troop which probably doesn't sound like a big deal but i had really zero in the way of experience of doing anything that you would want your scoutmaster master to know about. I, I was a boy scout for all of about two weeks as a kid. I really just didn't like it. And I uh, had no, you know, I wasn't an outdoorsman of any kind. I had no position in the troop, you know, never did any camping or, you know, any kind of serious hiking or anything like that. But I, for some reason they asked me to step in at a time when we really didn't know if the troop would survive you know, the tragedy and it it not only did it, it thrived and those experiences, you know, the, the, the physical experiences in terms of the, the, the camping and the hiking and some of the higher high adventure trips we did and the leadership experiences really are what led me into entrepreneurship a few years later when, you know, I, I lost that job that I'd had for almost 21 years.
0: I mean, I, I just can't imagine stepping into those shoes and then taking this, you know, small community uh, and, and just really taking over this leadership role in the midst of such a tragedy. And um, I mean, how did you talk to the, the boys about it?
1: Yeah, that's a real, that's a really good question. And yeah, so to your first point, I remember vividly sitting in the meeting just a couple of nights after all this happened, you know, and being asked to be the new Scoutmaster and finally looking around the room and saying, folks, there are 12 people here and 11 of them have more scouting ex- scouting experience than I do. So I'm not sure why you're asking me, but if this is really what you think is best for the troop right now, then okay, so be it. And I and I, I said, I'll I'll do my best. And what made it work, I think, were two things. Uh, one, a few other people uh, stepped up to help and volunteered to be assistant scoutmasters, and these were guys who were far more qualified than I was, but just didn't have the bandwidth to to take on the main job at that point. And because of that, we had a really good team in place to to guide the troop and you know and 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 get it through this patch. And the the second thing was that, you know, in terms of how I made it work. I think part of it was a we we did not hide from the fact that the tragedy had happened. We discussed it regularly, and we and we worked our way through it, and we healed as a group. And two, I also did not try to hide my lack of experience from the boys, and they knew that a lot of times when they were doing something for the first time, I was doing something for the first time too. You know, stepping into the wobbly canoe, or you know, whatever it was. Uh, and I think, you know, we talk so much now about you know, empathy and leadership, but that, that really gave me an extra measure of empathy. The fact that I was in a lot of cases going through the same
0: things as they were Uh, a couple of things that you said was, you know, really the fact that you were humble taking on that position. I I actually have a saying on my website, be humble or be humbled. And I think when you're, when you're leading whether it's, you know, teenage boys or, uh, you know, adults, having that mindset of, you know, you're not, you're not too good for the job um, and really being humble enough to accept the help from people that have more experience than you. And I don't know, I just, that's a pretty great lesson that I think wasn't lost on those boys.
1: Yeah, that's a mindset that serves me well. And, and I try to do that professionally too. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, well, you know, purportedly an expert. You know, I, I know my way, my way around marketing pretty well. But sometimes a client will ask a question and I don't know the answer. Right. And, you know, you have two choices then. You can sort of try to fudge your way through it, or you can say, Well, I don't know, but let me find out and I'll get back to you. And I and I think people just respect that when you're honest. And I think especially in a leadership position, your team respects that that you're not. Tap dancing, and you know that you're 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 not afraid to admit that you don't know what you don't know.
0: can you can you talk a little bit about the lessons that you learned from this experience that that you then put in your book?
1: Sure. So one of the centerpieces of Leader leader by Accident is uh, what's called the Scoutmaster Minute. Mm -hmm. And this is a part of the scouting program where essentially at the end of each weekly meeting, you know, the boys form a circle and go over any last minute announcements or whatever. And then the Scoutmaster delivers a little message designed to send them out the door with a positive or motivational thought. And as I stepped into that Scoutmaster role, I thought, well, you know, I don't know three ways to start a fire without matches or how to find north without a compass or all the things that scoutmasters should know but i think i could deliver a decent scoutmaster minute so i worked hard on those and and you know it was very gratifying to me that a number of our guys when they reached eagle scout would you know Recall their scouting careers and their reflections at their Eagle Scout ceremony. And and several mentioned those scout master minutes as a source of inspiration. So I kept an archive of those as I, as I did them, you know, I'd always type them up the next day, just mostly so I wouldn't repeat myself. Uh, But anyway, I kept those and I used them throughout the book and then take whatever lesson it was that I was trying to teach to the scouts and then translate it for something that's more meaningful for you and me. And, you know, people, Getting through their days as you know adults and trying to be leaders and all that sort of thing.
0: Would you mind sharing a couple of them? Oh, sure.
1: I, I mean, there were themes, right? So, uh, you know, I, I talked a lot about gratitude and about how that really takes a little work. Um, and, and I'll share a specific one, but uh, we talked about, um, you know, not only gratitude, but uh, I tried to do things that were a little bit outside the scouting box, too, and sort of consider the whole young man and not just, you know, who he was when he was at Scouts. And we would talk about things like one time I shared a credit card bill I'd gotten. For, you know, say $1,200. And I said, look, it says here I only have to pay $10 this month. What do you think will happen if I do that? And we did the math and we walked through why you have to be really careful when you get to college age and you get all these credit card offers in the mail and, you know, that kind of thing. We talked about uh, a book I'd read about the teenage brain and some of the stuff that's going on in there and when, why they, you know, why teenage impulsive behaviors and all that and the different regions of the brain actually mature at different rates and all. So, um, you know, there, there were, there were themes and topics, but I'd say, you know, overall sort of, you know, I, I was just trying to think like what would I want to know as a teenager? Cause it's a difficult stretch of years, you know, and it's a time when I feel like they, they really need as many positive voices in their ear as possible, especially in this day and age when, you know, we, we really have no control over what they're consuming, you know, via the internet or on their phones or, or whatever. Um, the 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 more positive things we can put in their ears, the 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 better off they are in the long run.
0: Who would you say would gain the most from your book? What what audience?
1: I, I'd say anybody who anybody who wants to be a leader, anybody who is a leader and is uncertain. I think, um, you know, it's written for really a pretty wide audience, I would say. And the feedback I've had, the, so the two pieces of feedback I've had on it most are, one, Jim, when I sit down and read this, it feels like I'm sitting across the table from you having a conversation, which is great. That's, that's one of the things I learned in radio was how to, in radio, we call it writing for the ear, right? But to, to write conversationally in, a, in an approachable way. And the other thing I hear a lot is, you know what, this is really what I needed to hear right now. In other words, we, we've all been told to get out of our comfort zone. I'm not the first one to share that message in a book by a long shot, right? But we need to be reminded of things sometimes. I, I always think back to the uh, the sales trainer, Zig Ziglar, you know, and, and somebody said to him, Zig, the trouble with this sales training of yours is it doesn't last. And he said, well, neither does showering. That's why we recommend doing it daily. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's similar to that. I mean, we we need a little prod and a little reminder that, yeah, it's too easy to get ensconced on our couch and binge watching whatever we're binge watching and all. And we have to challenge ourselves or we don't grow. And, you know, that the dual message of the, the way I was challenged by stepping into the Scoutmaster role that I really wasn't qualified for. And then a few years later, how that prepared me to, you know, sort of step off the ledge into entrepreneurship and and become a marketing consultant, which I, I had never, ever considered. Doing anything other than having somebody else hand me a paycheck for whatever I was doing at the time, you know. So th- those are f- really the the core of the book, the the central messages. Those two instances of stepping out of my comfort zone and and the difference it made in my life.
0: Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you: is the the transition that you made uh, into marketing, how your experience as a scoutmaster actually led you to doing that? Yep,
1: great question. So the the sort of fuller version of that story is the company I'd worked for for two decades, had a new owner. I lasted about a year with the new owner that did not go well. And then I was shown the door. And so I, as I said, had never considered doing anything other than having a job. So I started sending around a bunch of resumes and there was not a whole lot of interest in hiring a 51 year old self-taught marketer at that point. So, uh, while all that was going on, a few people came to me and asked me, Hey, could you come to, over here to, you know, my small business and look at this, or I have this proposal from a vendor to, you know, do my website, take a look at it and let me know what you think. And and then the third one reached out and I thought, wow, maybe there is a path here. And I went and hung out my shingle and, and it's gone great since then. I've, you know, never been happier in my work and I, I just love what I do, but the, I'm glad you asked the question about how the two things connect, because it wasn't like I woke up one morning and said, "Hey, I hiked the Grand Canyon, so therefore I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. That part comes after, and that's the part I think we miss a lot when we step out of our comfort zone, is taking a little time to reflect on what happened, a, to give ourselves a little credit, at least for trying, right? Even if it didn't go as we had hoped, to say, Hey, you know, I did this' and OK, this is what I'm going to do differently next time. But we're, we're so busy all day long with our you know, phones and our inboxes chiming and buzzing and popping up alerts on our screen and all that. And we lose that time for reflection, you know, and we have to look back and I say, wow, whatever gave me the guts to think I could go be self-employed and do my own thing. And in the rearview mirror, that became much clearer that, you know, if I had survived some of the adventures that I survived and, and managed to guide this troop through what it went through and all that, that probably I could earn a living doing this.
0: What was maybe one of the defining moments that really gave you the courage to do that? Yeah, you know, about a
1: year after the Browning tragedy, there was a weekend. And and again, when this happened, we didn't know how the other parents would respond. We didn't know if the troop would survive, if they would just want, not want their young men around those memories and, you know, who could blame them. Right. And instead, the opposite happened and everybody kind of doubled down and got more involved. And beyond those three guys who are still dear friends, uh, who, you know, became assistant masters, a lot of other people stepped up and took on more responsibility. And a year later, we had a weekend where we were able to serve like 140 people at a pancake breakfast fundraiser with half the troop, while the other half the troop was out collecting bags of food for another fundraiser. And then we had a third thing and a fourth thing going on that weekend. And that would never have happened like a year or two before that. We were thriving, everybody was involved, everybody was showing up for stuff and they were having fun. And you know, in any organization, when people see that, whether it's your employees or, you know, a scout troop, you know, that naturally attracts more people and that that's what happened. And so I think, you know, that, that, that moment, that weekend for me was a really specific time when I thought, wow, this really, it really is working.
0: What would you credit to that that environment. What What do you think worked the best in, in helping you achieve this this environment for for these boys and the and the parents?
1: Not being afraid to ask for help, for one. But among in the very first email I sent to all the parents the day after I became scoutmaster, I said, "Hey, look, I don't have a lot of experience at this. We need you." And, you know, if you can possibly step up and take more responsibility on, you know, the troop needs you. And they did. And that was a great lesson for me. Sometimes, you know, you don't have to do everything yourself, ask for help and it will appear. And so that was part of it, I think was sort of, you know, engaging as many people as we could to, to keep the wheels turning and and to keep this thing moving forward. And again, I think the other part was what we already talked about briefly was just sort of. Not hiding either from the tragedy that had happened or from my own lack of experience, just being up front with the boys, being able to laugh at myself when I did something stupid, and which I did plenty of times, you know, and that kind of thing. So
0: what would you say is one of the most memorable moments of your, your time as a scoutmaster? other other than that weekend that you just spoke of?
1: Sure. The the high adventure trips for sure. So, and those for, for those who are not involved in scouting, those are things we, we would try to do one every other year. And these are for the older guys. I think typically you had to be at least boy Scouts in general are age 11 to 17. Uh, and generally for these, you had to be either 13 or 14 years old, but we did a trip to a scout installation called sea base, which is down in the lower Florida keys. And we, paddled out to a little island, four and a half miles in these big wooden Hawaii five O style canoes, which is a good long paddle. And then spent, you know, five days, four nights there, not only with no phones, but with no wristwatches or anything electric or electronic, except our flashlights and it was an amazing experience i mean we we went powerboat fishing one day we snorkeled in the day we snorkeled in the night which was another story um, we did you know kayaking through the mangroves all around this island and everything and all this stuff and it was just an amazing adventure we did another um, high adventure trip to yellowstone national park which was beautiful but had had a whole ton of snow that year which then all melted to the point where we couldn't, we had to change our itinerary because we couldn't get to some of the campsites we were supposed to occupy because the, the rivers and the streams were so swollen, we, they couldn't be crossed in the usual places. So we spent five days again, now with backpacks on, crisscrossing this area called the meadows, which in normal times probably are meadows, but they were mostly under six to 12 inches of water. I mean, I put 20 some miles on a pair of hiking sandals that week. All while well, we were all, you know, covered in netting and rubbed down with DEET and everything because it was just a constant cloud of mosquitoes around you the whole time. And it was spectacular. I mean, it was just one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And then, it, you know, in between those two trips, not related to scouting, actually, but my wife and I and another couple hiked down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and camped down there in various sites for four nights and then against all odds, hiked back out again. And that, that was uh, that was a bucket list experience for for sure because you know most people don't realize you know you stand on the rim of the grand canyon and you look and go oh, it's beautiful it's spectacular photos don't do it justice and that's all true but when you stand on the rim you're seeing about the top one-third of it so it is a long way down there and a long way out and um, so that that was uh, quite the experience but yeah we had and, and even just some wonderful moments on local trips where we were, you know, maybe an hour or two from home. I mean, we just saw some beautiful sights and, you know, had some great times around campfires and all that. There was so much to recommend about the whole experience.
0: There's a section in your book that takes a somewhat different angle in looking at organizational culture. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Right. It's about the language we use as leaders and, and the impact it can have on culture. And the the seed for that in the book was a, a couple of different situations where, you know, just a few words that, in, in one case, I a scout and I were setting up uh, chairs or something before a meeting, something really dull. And I knew that he was beginning his junior year in high school. And I asked if he had, you know, started to think about college majors and that kind of thing. And we talked a little bit about that. And I promptly, you know, he said to me, Mr. Rafferty, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you like to do? You know, what interests you? And we talked a little more, and I forgot the conversation had ever happened. You know, small talk, really. And a year and a half later, when he became an Eagle Scout, he sent me a handwritten thank you note. And in that note, he recalled that conversation that I had forgotten and said that was the first time in his life that anyone had ever asked him what he wanted to do with his life he was 15 years old, I think, maybe 16, somewhere in there at that time. And that was kind of jaw dropping to me that what I thought was, you know, a throwaway question, small talk really had a much bigger impact than I had intended. And, you know, that's one example. There are a couple of others in the book, but the language we use as leaders really, really matters. And there's a quote in there from Tom Peters as well, a little passage from one of his books about how culture is shaped by, and I'm paraphrasing here, but culture is shaped by the way the boss greets the receptionist when she comes in the front door. Culture is shaped by the way the boss greets the three or four people between the receptionist and her office. Culture is shaped by the tone and quality of the emails the boss fires off in the first 15 minutes after she gets to her desk. Those things all impact organization culture. And I think we miss that a lot. I think, you know, leaders don't always recognize the power of their words. And especially in this age, when so much of our communication happens by typing, right, we're, we're emailing, or IM or slack or MS teams, or however, we're communicating. And if I'm a leader, you know, firing off a do this, do that kind of thing, I'm sure going to try, I think, to follow up in person, or at least by voice, and make sure not only that it was received and understood, but that it was interpreted in the way I intended. Because the danger there is you wind up with somebody with their nose really out of joint because they didn't understand the tone of what you were trying to say. And you're the last one to know.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes leaders forget how, how much they can impact the culture. And, you know, it, It's interesting to me that you could forget that, but it really is the the people at the top of the organization that shape the culture of that organization. So. um, It
1: is. And, and one of the points I make when I, you know, do it, do a keynote speech and, and in the book as well is, you know, we say leader, 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 and we talk about the language we use and organizational culture. I don't care if you run an organization of 200 people or if you're the new salesperson who started last week or if you don't work at all, somebody somewhere in your life is looking to you for leadership, whether it's your significant other, your spouse, yeah, your spouse, your uh, your child, your aging parent. I mean, all this stuff about the language we use and when we talk about organizational culture, it applies. You don't have to be the boss to be a leader because somebody mm-hmm. needs you for
0: that. I, I want to hear some of your, your Scoutmaster minutes? Like, I'm sure. really curious.
1: Yeah, sure. So one went like this and, and I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you the story about it first and then I'll do the Scoutmaster minute. Cause this, this was pretty gratifying. Um, towards the end of my five-year run as Scoutmaster, I didn't have time one week to prepare a new Scoutmaster minute. It, it my last year as Scoutmaster overlapped my first year of launching my business, so you can imagine it was it was fairly busy. So I was very upfront with the boys about this that you know it was April, and I joked that in honor of Earth Day, I was going to recycle the Scoutmaster minute right? and so I dug way back in the archives, one from very early on, probably had been about four years before that, and we we formed our circle, and I delivered the opening line. And I hear, I see out of the corner of my eye, one of my older scouts and he nods a little bit and he smiles to himself and he mumbles. I remember this one, All right? And, you know, having raised teenagers at that point for one of them to remember something that you said four years later, let alone 10 minutes, you know, it was, was pretty gratifying. So that one was on my recurring theme of gratitude and um, it went like this. Um, I mean, guys, yesterday I went out for a run And got to the end of our street and turned onto the main road. And there was about a 25 or 30 mile an hour wind in my face. And I thought, man, that's the last thing I need because I'm already slow. But I thought it's okay because I come back this way. And on the way back, I'll feel that wind helping me along. Well, it was much later in the day. And I realized, you know, I never did notice that wind giving me a push on the way back. The wind was still blowing, but because we were moving in the same direction, I guess, I just had no sensation of being helped. So is that how we are as we go through our days? Do we tend to notice the stuff that annoys us and the stuff that goes wrong and not the stuff that's good, right? We get in the shower, hot water comes out, we don't give it a second thought, but if only cold water comes out, somebody's going to hear about it, right? So I'm not suggesting that you kneel down and say a prayer of thanks every time you flip a switch and a light bulb comes on. But I am suggesting that it takes a little more effort, a little more work to notice the things that are good as we go through our days. And that's important because if you don't do that, then it's very easy to fall into the all-American trap of just complaining about everything all the time. So as you go through your days, look for the ways that the wind is at your back.
0: It's interesting. There's a a stoic practice of of really taking the time out of you know just a couple of minutes out of your day to to write down or just contemplate the things that that you can be grateful for, and there's always something. It, yes. it is. It's a lot easier to be negative than it is to be positive about things going oh, on in our lives. But
1: it is, and the thing when I, when I talk about that in front of an audience, I always say. Pardon me, that that was first delivered in 2008, which was long before maybe 2009, but long before we arrived at our current climate of, you know, social media shouting and shaming in this political climate that we're in and all this negativity, you know, the stuff that we consume, the negativity that we see with our eyes and ears on a daily basis. You know, I feel like back then it was a trickle and now it's a fire hose, you know, so I think it's even more important. It's more takes more effort. And it's more important that we make the effort to to find a way to focus on gratitude. and And you're right. Some people do gratitude journaling. I think that's great. Uh, if you have the the time and the dedication to do that, it's very helpful. Mine is a little simpler. I just uh, last thing I do at night before I close my eyes is come up with three things that happened that day that I am grateful for. And Some days it's really hard to come up with three things and other days it takes a little thought to decide which three things. And that in itself is a really useful exercise in what's important, but that that's worked a lot for me. And, you know, does that mean I'm happy all the time? Of course not, you know, no, um, but I'm more positive than I used to be. And that that may be even more significant. I think.
0: What would you say is the most powerful message in your book?
1: probably the one about getting out of your comfort zone and the change that that can make because i've i've lived through that now that sort of two step process of of stepping into the scoutmaster job and then stepping into an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial role and i look at where i am now versus where i was then in a variety of ways, and I don't just mean like professionally or how much money I make or, you know, the the schedule freedom that I have with my work or or that, but, you know, who I am as a person, it just all made me better. I think living in that environment of scouting with the, you know, the way the whole program is built around leadership and character and integrity and, and all that, you know, that's a good thing to be exposed to, especially if you're a teenager, but even for an adult like me.
0: What advice would you give to uh, an entrepreneur just starting out um, you know that they've they've taken that first step of stepping out of their comfort zone and deciding to to become an entrepreneur um what What advice would you give them?
1: Go have a coffee with everybody you know, literally I mean, especially business contacts, but you know. Really anybody, because just let them hear your story and what you're thinking of doing, and and they'll offer suggestions and they'll help you refine what you're going to do, especially if they're other already entrepreneurs themselves. And most of all, each one of those or most of them will lead to someone else they'll say oh you know who you should talk to and you'll meet somebody new and your network will grow and that really is the key to to anything and especially if you're doing the solo entrepreneur thing as i as i have you know you you really need a, a support system a network of some kind so get out you know it always comes up in our business group, you know, our peer group meetings, the fear of networking events, right? People hate having to go and make small talk and all that, but you know, you have to do it and and that's how you meet people and that's how you grow. And you may not come home with three viable leads, but if you got to know three people and maybe you can help one of them better, I've, I've made that work because I'm, I'm also, you know, kind of odd, really. I like, I'm fine with, Giving a keynote speech to 200 people. I really don't like standing in a circle with two or three people I don't know because I'm not, I'm not so good at the small talk, right? But what's worked for me is to try to make it not about me. So if I go to one of those events, I'm looking for ways that I can connect someone to someone else. And just as one example, you know, two young men, really roughly the age of our son, who's now in his mid 20s, who grew up in the neighborhood, uh, both you know, got out of college and launched their own businesses. And I was able to bring them into this, you know, networking community that I'm in and, and introduce them to people and watch as they, as they learned and grew and they're doing really well. And that's been so gratifying. That's been made me happier than anything I've done on my own.
0: In your time, in in the beginning of the, the scout mastership, when Mm -hmm. you first took over thinking back to that time, is there anything that if if you could do it again, do it over, whether you made a mistake or it was just a, a, a time that was really rewarding that you could do it over again, what would that be?
1: I probably could have used a little more patience. You know, especially when you're out you know, in the woods somewhere, and, you know, wonderful young men, but teenagers are knuckleheads sometimes, and sometimes they do things that they don't think through, and I probably went from zero to pinging the needle a little fast too many times. Um, You know, that really, I think, I I could have used a little more patience and a little more empathy, especially in the early days, because, you know, feeding into that was the fact that I was uncomfortable. Right. So then when something went not as planned, then I wouldn't say I panicked, but I, you know, I did overreact probably
0: a couple of times. You say that that level of patience is better gained through experience though. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Because and this is true of anything, right? Launching a business or being the boss or or whatever, you know, it takes a little time to get comfortable in what you're doing. And that was me as a scoutmaster. And that that as I said, that that certainly fed into some of that where I could have used more patience. I think, you know, when I moved to Baltimore, I was 28 years old and the five radio announcers I managed were all significantly older than me. I'd like to have some of that back too, you know, because I was, you know, learning on the job. I I knew the radio part well enough to do that part of the job, but I could have been a better manager. And, you know, I think sometimes you just have to give yourself a hall pass for the fact that, you know, you you are what you are and there's no substitute, no matter how hard we try, there's no substitute for experience. But what I said about you know being a scoutmaster and not being able to not being afraid to admit that I didn't know what I didn't know, I I didn't have that going when I was twenty eight years old and managing people over than me. I think I was very much afraid to admit that I didn't know what I didn't
0: know. Yeah, it, no, it, it's it's pretty cool because I, I like to ask that question because there's always these these lessons that we learn and if we could go back and do it over, it's uh, like the patience thing or being empathetic, the self-awareness component of leadership. And I think it's good to share those lessons with with new leaders that are coming in and and maybe help them recognize where they're at. Um, And maybe to give themselves some grace when they make them those mistakes because we all make them
1: yes Mm -hmm. yeah and don't be afraid to apologize when you do you know make or make a wrong step that's so true you know you look at you know what went wrong what could have been different and there's a, a part in the book where i talk a little bit about that in terms of not within a given job but in terms of the the forks in the road in our lives you know as i wrapped up college, I had the choice between an internship in radio and an internship in TV. And I always wonder what would have happened if I'd chosen the other path. You know, I, I don't know, but you know, the radio station I wound up working at was in the town where I met my wife. So you know that couldn't have turned out better. So enough with the what if stuff, but you, but you do, you look back and wonder like, what if I, what if I'd done this instead of that? You know, there's any number of movies around that, right. Around the alternate paths.
0: Well, I really enjoy talking to to people like you that have these really interesting experiences and and just have these lessons to share. And I think that's really what it's all about. You know, when we're leading, being able to share those those missteps and the lessons that we've learned to help people, you know, make better decisions on their path. Yeah,
1: you know, 100%. It's... You know, we're never, no matter how long you've been at something, you're never going to bat a thousand. You know, you're going to get some stuff wrong. Yeah. Um, some Somebody shared uh, on Facebook the other day, it was a rejection level, a rejection letter from a record label. And it was sent to uh, Paul Hewson, who we better know as Bono, right? <laughs> You know, it's a, the, he kept it right. It's you know hanging on a wall somewhere, I'm sure. But you know, we don't we don't get them all right, and you know, we we never will. And it's that's part of it, I think, is you know self forgiveness. And but then you have to take that self forgiveness, I think, and share it. You know, and there's another story in the book about a a boss in in my early radio days uh, who, well, I I did something on the air unintentionally, but that was really dumb, and uh, it was a fireable offense. I'm sure. But, and instead he put his hand on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry that happened to you. I I know you didn't do it on purpose. Right. And what a lesson for, I was 18 at the time, you know, what a lesson for anybody at any age that of all the things he could have done, he went straight to forgiveness. And, you know, what kind of impact could that have on an organizational culture? You know, if your employees, your team members know that, a ton of bricks isn't going to come down on their head every time they make a mistake. What happens, right? They start to do the things we say we want our employees to do. They start to make their own decisions and think outside the box and act, you know, quote like they own the company and, and do what's right instead of what the next checkbox is. They stop running to you to cross every T and dot every I to, you know, cover their behinds and you get a more empowered team. Then that's, you know, probably easy to say and harder to do, but sometimes, and this is back to my maybe not having enough patience in early days as a scoutmaster. Sometimes you have to take a deep breath and count to whatever you count to and say, I'm sorry that happened to you.
0: Curious. Now, what, what did you do?
1: Oh, I can tell you the story. We have time here. Yeah. So uh, my very first radio job was in my sophomore year of college. And it was actually not the college station, but a commercial station in Ithaca, New York. And I generally worked weekends, but at the end of that, school year so early may they asked me if i could fill in on a friday morning just for two hours and it was perfect because i I was done my finals i had the car packed do my two hours on the air get in the car and drive home for the summer and that station carried cbs news live at the top of the hour every hour but at 10 o'clock on this particular friday morning the news was preempted so they could carry president carter's eulogy for the eight servicemen who died in the helicopter raid, trying to rescue our hostages in Iran, which was a very dark moment in American history and one that made no impression at all on a self-absorbed 18 year old. So I got in, you know, the guy before me wrapped up and got out of the studio and I got in and got my stuff set up and picked a record and queued it up, which you still did back then, an actual vinyl record. And President Carter finished and CBS news summarized and they finished and I hit the station ID and I played the record and off we went. Well, small market radio, there's no phone in the studio on weekdays during business hours. The receptionist has the phone, which has this big long cord on it. They put it in the studio at nights and weekends. So I had no phone. So 20 minutes after I played the record, the receptionist comes in to tell me that the phone has been ringing nonstop ever since and that the people on the other end are very angry and then and only then did i realize what i had done and then to this day i swear it was not intentional but the the song i had chosen at random to play following the eulogy for the servicemen who died in the helicopter crash was frank sinatra singing that's life which begins right that's life you know what all the people say you're riding high in april shot down in may those are the opening lines. And so I spent the last hour and a half of that shift with my head down on the console, right, pondering the fact that my radio career was over after eight months. And instead, I had this experience where not my boss, but his boss, the general manager, met me in the lobby and put his hand on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry that happened to you. I know you didn't do it on purpose. Have a great summer. We'll see you back here in the fall. And... that just made such an impact on me. And that really, I've always remembered that and and tried, not always successfully, but tried to be that forgiving when I'm in a leadership situation. And that's another one where when we say leader, we don't mean boss. I mean, we, we could all use more of that as parents. We could all use more of that dealing with our own aging parents or our spouse or significant other, right? That ability to take a deep breath and say, okay, this wasn't intentional. It was terrible. I made that radio station look really bad that day, but you know, it wasn't intentional and he, and he got that and I'll never forget him for it.
0: That's a great story.
1: It's, (laughs) I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't write it, right? It's, it's true. If I, if I had sat all night and thought about what's the most inappropriate song I could play, you know, that would have been it. And it happened at random. So.
0: I'm replaying our conversation and we've, we've covered a lot of information. What, um, is there any message that you would like to relay to the audience that, that we haven't had time or we haven't discussed um, and that you feel is important for us to, to talk about?
1: Well, you know it's interesting. So I'm wrapping up um, the audiobook version of the book, and so when you do that, you get to go reread everything you wrote, and you want to change a hundred things, but it's too late, right? But anyway, I just and I just happened across this the other night, and it's sort of the corollary to what we're talking about. <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of you know going straight to forgiveness as a leader. And it's the sort of not being afraid to apologize thing. I, I did a Scoutmaster minute for the guys where we talked about <clears throat> a the fact that my you know I do a lot of reading and I just read this book and you know teenagers tend to get their back up right when parents call about and they get defensive and they're in, you know all that and so we talked about that and I said you know when you look somebody in the eye and say I'm sorry there's an actual physiological change that happens in the other person that makes them more likely to you know, to forgive you and to, you know, want, want to, want to work together with you instead of getting angry. And from there, we went to talk about the, the Toro company, the lawnmower and power equipment folks. So back in the nineties, you know, and again, I explained to the boys, when you're in that business, you, people get hurt using your products. And the usual approach is you line up a bunch of lawyers and you make it as difficult and expensive for them as possible to sue you. And in the early nineties, I think it was, I'm going from memory, um, Toro tried a different approach. And when somebody got hurt using one of their products, they would send a company representative to that person, wherever they were. And that person would say, I'm sorry, not necessarily. It was our fault. Just sorry, this happened to you. Very similar to my radio boss, right? I'm sorry, this happened to you and let's talk about it and figure out how we can keep it from happening to someone else. That gesture saved Toro something like $75 million in legal costs over the next eight, 10 years, something like that. So we talked about that, about the power of an apology. And I think that's another really important thing to have in our toolkit as leaders is being able to own up to when we, we did do something wrong, when we did fly off the handle and it was uncalled for, you know, whatever it is, uh, the, that's a very, very powerful thing.
0: I've got one more question here. Well, two actually. You have you have more than one child? Yes, yes. Our son Matt is
1: twenty six. He uh, went to Vanderbilt and stayed in Nashville, so he lived there. He lives there, and our daughter Megan is twenty three. She also went to college in Nashville at Belmont, but then she came back home here to Baltimore, and she's a she's a nurse in the surgical ICU at one of our hospitals.
0: So as a father to thriving adults, what would you say the most important leadership lesson that you taught them was?
1: I hope the most important leadership lesson they learned from me was not in anything I said, but in the way I conducted myself. And Matt certainly saw a lot more of that, you know, having a front row seat for the whole Browning tragedy and the, the, my scout master experience and all of that. And in fact, I, I do, I do mention this in the book when that was all coming. So I, it became gradually clear to me over, you know, between us learning about the Browning family and my becoming scoutmaster three days, two days later, uh, it became gradually clear to me that I was going to be asked. Okay. It wasn't a complete surprise. And one of the things I did before I went to that meeting where they, they did officially ask was I went to Matt who was 12 and I said, look, they're going to ask me to be scoutmaster, And I guess I'm willing to do this, but I want to know that it's not going to ruin the experience for you. You know, if you don't want your dad to be that because they both kids that had me as, you know, baseball, softball, soccer coach and, and all that. So they, they knew the drill. And I said, if this is going to, you know, make your enjoyment of scouts less than it is, then I'll say no. And and that's, you know, it. it looking back, it seems odd to give a 12 year old veto power over that decision in that kind of circumstance, which was, you know, just unimaginable. But I'm really glad I did that, that I asked because, you know, I would not have wanted to, you know, forge ahead and take the job if he was going to be resentful about it. And it worked out fine. But, you know, I think, I hope they learned more from what I've done and how I've conducted myself than any you know lectures I've given them or any lessons I've, I've taught them verbally. They they both turned out to be really good people.
0: Well looking at at both your son and your daughter can you see in them that 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 actually did occur that they learned so much from you through, through your actions?
1: Yeah, I think so. And in different ways. Yeah. I always said from the, from the time they were very young, probably the biggest surprise for me as a parent was how different two people from the same parents can be right. They, they both in, in not in any bad ways, but they're both very different types. And Matt is, very much like me and that he tends to be quiet and thoughtful and he will tell you what he's thinking after he's made up his mind about it. Right. And he, he keeps things close to the vest. And Megan has a go getter planner, you know, checking the boxes, moving forward on the path that she is going to move on thing to her that I guess she gets from her mother. Cause it's, <laughs> it's certainly not from me. Right? Um, uh, but you know, and and I, I, I love obviously I love them both, they're my kids, but I I love that they're so different, that they're, you know, both such good people in such different ways and that they that they have those things. Megan Megan will go far, I think. And Matt will too, but in a different way.
0: I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about your book and your experiences and, and your family life. Uh I just I don't know. It's it's very interesting to me. I like to make these conversations more personal because you get a sense of where someone's leadership philosophy comes from, um, and I think that makes it more powerful, more personal.
1: Yeah. No. And and I I sincerely appreciate the chance to have the conversation. It's it's been very enjoyable. And and that. <sighs> you know partly because of technology partly maybe because we've all been working from home or whatever but i think it's getting harder and harder and maybe less necessary right to separate our personal stuff from our professional stuff and and that's not entirely a bad thing you know in the book i talk at some length about these monthly business peer groups where one of the first things I did when I did hang out my shingle was to join one. And I still participate in that. Now I facilitate one as well. And, you know, once a month, eight to 10 to 12 of us sit around a table and for three hours and sort of, you know, talk about each other's challenges and offer advice and try to problem solve and all. But the reason I bring it up here is because we get to know each other not just our businesses, but we also know each other's families and personal challenges and what's going on. They get very, very personal, um, and that leads to a completely different kind of business relationship than is typical. You know, I, I've done a good deal of business as a result from the people I've met in those groups, and I can say with a straight face that that might be the least of the benefits. Really, it's just the the relationships are so good and especially important when you're a solo entrepreneur like me and you don't have the water cooler, you know, people to hang around with and chat and all that. So, you know, I, I don't think we can, and I don't think we necessarily should separate our personal stuff from our business stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more than fine with that.
0: For those listening that you would like to, um, Reach out to you either to employ your your services as a consultant, or have you speak to their organization, or to purchase your book. What's the best way to connect with you and and purchase your book?
1: They can go to leaderbyaccident.com that's the book website. Any form submissions there come straight to me, so I'll see them. But uh, there are links there to all the usual places where you'd buy the book, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and and all of those. There's more information and a little sample of, you know, speaking and all that and, uh, you know, all the general information you'd need. And my other website is jmmarketing.com, J-M-R-K-E-T-I-N-G. That's my core consulting business. But Leaderbyaccident.com is probably easier to remember, and they'll they'll both wind up in the same inbox.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jim. I'll I'll have links to your websites in the show notes, so those listening uh, can can find you easy enough.
1: Thanks so much, Dave. Really
0: appreciated the chat. Yes, sir, me too. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit HollenbachLeadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.